Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day, and I had the opportunity to connect with Scott McKnight this week. Scott is a recognized authority in Jesus Studies, New Testament scholarship, and the history of early Christianity. He's been frequently consulted by Fox News, Newsweek, Time, and many other news outlets, and has written over 60 books on the historical Jesus, early Christianity, and Christian living. Scott serves as professor of New Testament studies at Northern Seminary, and his latest book is available now from Tyndale, entitled A Church of Tove. Now, on this week's episode, Scott and I have an important conversation about toxicity in the church. Scott shares some of the signs of toxic leadership and reveals tactics often used to silence those who try to speak out against it. Scott points us toward Jesus and the redemptive aspects of a healthy church culture, including practical ways we all can help nurture tove or goodness in our churches. So let's go ahead and dive into my conversation with Scott McKnight. Scott, welcome back to the Church Leaders Podcast. It's so good to have you with us. Well, Jason, good to be back with you. Excellent, brother. Now, I've been interested in your latest project uh, because you and your daughter, Laura, um, you work together researching and writing about a topic that really we wish we did not have to address in the church, but unfortunately we must address, and that is toxicity of leadership and kind of the rippling impact that it causes. And in this book, Scott, um, entitled A Church Called Tove, you share two warning signs of toxicity in a church. Uh, you talk about narcissism and then power through fear. And I was wondering if you kind of break those down and describe what these two signs really look like in churches. Well, let's start with narcissism. Um, and, I, and I do think, Jason, these are the two warning signs. These are almost... Um, well, I, I will say this. Every church that I've been involved in where there is a toxic culture that is in the center of the top of the culture. I mean, sometimes church cultures can be toxic because there's a bunch of people, congregants, who are just full of toxicity themselves and they make it miserable for everybody else. Right. You could have a totally tove pastor, but right. by and large, uh, our, our experience has been that toxic cultures are shaped from the leadership culture, from the pastor and from, let's say, his, I call them retainers, uh, because I don't always want to dignify the word elders, deacons, and even Christian leaders with this, mm. uh, with this sort of characteristic. But um, a narcissist is, is into his own glory. A narcissist is into a lack of empathy for others. Um, a narcissist is for the institution, for the program, for the church, because everything good about the institution, the programs, the church, reflect glory onto that narcissistic leader. In other words, um, they so identify with the church and the success and flourishing and whatever, the glory of the church, that they get glorified by it. And they create a culture in which they are glorified by it. And let's face it, if you're a leader and you've got a great business, you get a lot of credit for it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, this this is partly the way it works. But um, a narcissist nurtures a glory for himself. Uh, a narcissist um, works in such a way that uh, there's so much splendor connected to who he is and to what he's accomplished that he lives off of this. I remember when I was a, a college student, a pastor told me that when sermons were over, he did not like to go to the back of the church because he was forcing people to tell him nice things hmm. that he preached a good sermon. And he said, I know many pastors who have failed uh, because they begin to live for that kind of glory and they adjust their sermons. So he told me he went to the front and if people wanted to talk to him, they would have to come forward. And he wasn't being mean about it. It was just that he was avoiding the trap of glory. There is a lot of glory connected to pastoring. There is a lot of glory to preaching a sermon. But I have found that narcissistic pastors have great ambition and they will channel channel all their energies in the direction of promoting the church as a way of promoting themselves. The other side of the narcissist that we found to be so characteristic is they don't have empathy and compassion for others. They may um, promote compassionate ministries and empathetic ministries. They may have a great ministry toward the homeless, but that pastor himself is not bothered when they when he has to fire or he decides to get rid of someone he's worked with for 20 years who has given themselves to that church for for a lifetime doesn't bother him in le- in the least hmm. i know leaders who weep over having to release people mm-hmm. and i know leaders who don't give a rip if someone leaves if You know, they just, they say they never fit here anyway. And that kind of, that kind of mentality is a breeding ground. It's fertile for breeding toxicity. Now I answered that for probably too much at length, but um, I know a lot of pastors who need to hear this or who uh, are encouraged to hear their own perceptions of what's going on in their churches. I've, I've been contacted since this book came out. What is it? 22 days, something like <laughs> that, 23 days. I've been contacted by numerous people who have told me about their, their ministers who were completely beat up by narcissistic leaders in previous churches. Mm. Some who are in churches right now. So I'm, I'm concerned Uh, about this. I'm concerned for them, but part of being concerned for them is naming what's going on and clarifying it. The other side is power through fear. I once taught with a professor who told students that he had the gift of intimidation. Hmm. Well, yeah, I I suppose that was partly true, but that's a culture that 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 professor nurtured. And anyone who says that they have the gift of intimidation 
is using a powerful spiritual word, the gift of the spirit, mm. spiritual gifts for a positively evil trait. It's it's a it's a it's an oxymoron. It is a contradiction of Christianity. Uh, Christian leaders do not have the gift of intimidation. They have the gift of compassion. Hmm. Good pastors. I mean, I travel with pastors a lot. I meet with pastors, but I take students to um, Turkey and Greece to see the sites of Paul and John. I take students to Israel to see the sites of Jesus. And you can tell the pastors in the group. I mean, they are so obvious. They have a way with people. It's genuine compassion and understanding and interest in other people. They aren't there on the make trying to accomplish something and prove something and uh, expand their own, uh, let's say, platform. They, they can't be around people without having compassion for them. I'll, I'll give an example at Willow Creek. Steve Carter was this way. Mm -hmm. Steve Carter uh, had compa has compassion for people. He was grieved by the stories about these women, and he was grieved for the women. Others pounced on him, called them liars and colluders. Uh, I know people who worked at Harvest who were deeply, Harvest is a church in Chicagoland, um, who were deeply compassionate and saw the wounding that was going on and came around those people and nurtured them. Those are pastors. A pastor is not a fear-mongering, power-driven person who pushes everybody out of the way as they seek to accomplish their ambitious goals. They are people who see on the road the wounded person uh, of what Luke calls half dead, uh, and they are like the Good Samaritan who bends down, lifts the person, takes care of them, nurtures them, takes them to an inn. You know, all the that's what a pastor is like. And we need to exalt this in our seminaries. And I talk to my students about it all the time. And, and Jason, this is my favorite line. Pastors, pastor, people. When, when students say to me, do you think I can pastor? I, I put it this way. Two questions. Who are you pastoring? And which people see you as their pastor? Pastors uh, don't become pastors when they get a job so they can preach sermons on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Pastors is a gift that people have. And when you have the gift, you are always pastoring. You know, I'm a teacher. I'm not a pastor. I do some pastoring, but I'm, and I'm, I am absolutely befuddled at times when students say, I look at you as my pastor. I think, wow, I'm, I'm unbelievably honored by this, but I'm a teacher. I, if I, if I learn something about gardening, I want to teach it. If I learn something about baseball, I want to teach it. If, you know, I just am always instructing because I see things and then I try to put it together and I order them in my brain and I learn about things and I like to pass it on. 
Pastor is a gift. I know some people say it's an office. Uh, I don't get into that category. I just don't think it's very New Testament-ish. But I believe that pastors have the gift of pastoring people. They care about them. They nurture them. They lead them toward Christ, and they nurture them in their Christian life. So those are sort of long-winded answers, Jason. But those are my two big concerns of forming a toxic culture. Leaders who have narcissistic tendencies and leaders who like to intimidate and make people afraid or create fear in other people, uh, intimidate other people. These are not people who are going to lead us in the right direction in the church, and they're going to create toxic cultures. We need pastors who pastor people in such a way that they nurture a tove culture, a culture of goodness. Yes, yeah, Scott, and and uh, what I appreciate about it, as you're walking through that, um, you use some examples, examples specifically from Willow Creek and also from Harvest in um, speaking of some of the pastors who had the gift of pastoring, who who kind of came around people that were being wounded um, during these these times, and, and I'm curious as you've been looking at you know some of these real life examples and, and some that that you and Laura are very close to. I mean, you you attended Willow Creek for I think two decades or so, and and so you saw a lot of this and you knew you knew these people. Um, what what are some of the tactics that toxic churches? or maybe we'd say toxic leaders within churches really used to silence and to belittle um, either victims of abuse when they speak up or even um, those other, like you said, those um, gifted pastors who are stepping in and trying to help um, those who have been wounded. Well, this is, uh, this is one of the, this is really the, the origin of our book. Um, I mean, the origin of the book, of course, was a dynamic between Laura and me when uh, she was um, absolutely befuddled by what happened with Bill Hybels and shocked because they felt a personal betrayal. They had trusted him for so long. Mm. And I, as a professor teaching seminary students who are asking me questions like this, what can I do now so that I don't become like that later? Mm. I'm thinking, whoa, that is a really serious question. Right. Because anybody in leadership who is successful can create a toxic culture. They don't have to have 25,000 people to create that. Well, for me, uh, one of the light bulb moments occurred in studying uh, second uh, post-World War II German pastor and Christian leader responses to the Holocaust and how they refused complicity in what happened. Hmm. And I began to ponder uh, what are the characteristics that um, humans use? What are the narratives you, humans use in order not to take responsibility for something they did, but let's just say they didn't, they never pressed the button in the uh, concentration camp to turn on the gases, but they refused to do the right thing when they had a chance to make an impact because it had co could have cost them their life. Hmm. 
what are the what are the things we do to um, respond when, say, women make allegations, or when a when an under leader decides that the way we've treated them is inappropriate. I, I talked to a young man who was a leader at one of these churches who brought to his, his leader, uh, another pastor, um, his proposal for a, a ministry. And the pastor looked it over, ripped it up into three pieces of paper, threw it at him and said, get out of my office. I don't want to see you again. And I'm thinking, now what, what kind of Christian leadership is that? Right. What's going on when things like this happen? So we began to study the way Christians rationalize, Christian leaders and churches and pastors and leadership teams rationalize what um, prob- almost certainly happened and many times did happen. And at, at other times, at the very least, probably happened and how do they respond we uh we found patterns that were so typical that they are nothing other than the way sinful people do things to avoid taking responsibility for their own sinfulness for instance they discredit the critics oh she's a nut Uh, or he's dysfunctional or he can't handle the heat when that surely sounds okay that's justifiable but the deeper truth is none of it is true hmm. they care they they assassinate a person's character now it gets worse because i saw this um especially with james mcdonald and i don't mind naming names here because this is factual mm-hmm. um they they would use words like diabolical satanic demonic they would attribute, so in other words, they demonized critics. They didn't just assassinate character. They turned it up to the, the highest level possible. And it, you know, I, I think, I'd like to think that they were using words hyperbole, you know, and hyperbole, hyperbolically. They were just overstating, exaggerating, you know, apocalyptic rhetoric. That's what works the best. But when you start accusing people of being in alliance with the evil one, you are ratcheting up the argument to the infinite level. Mm-hmm. And now you're playing the part of God and you're deciding who is on the right team and who is on the wrong team. Now, a third thing we learn, and this is the patterns of sinful people when they deal with their own sins as well, is they spin the story. They decide um, that the way to do it is to hijack the accuser's narrative and create an alternative version. And it is an intentionally false narrative, or at least it intentionally distorts the narrative. It intentionally tells the narrative in a way that protects the reputation of the leader, the pastor, the elders, the church, and instead blasts away at the other person so that the other person's story turns out to look like it is false and it is a false impression we found this i mean jason we found this way too often um when a per, when a woman's story 
is turned around and people in the church are told that she made up accusations. Mm. Oh yeah. man, now you're dealing with distortion at the level of intentional lies. Now this gets really serious and this is a new uh, expression or a new term that is being used frequently in the business world and in churches because it's what happens. It's called gaslighting. Mm -hmm. To gaslight someone is it's a form of psychological manipulation in which you do your best to tell a story, a counter narrative to an allegation in such a way that a person who is let, uh, making an alleged or is alleging uh, an accusation uh, becomes confused over whether they are really telling the truth. And they say, man, did that really happen to me? Or did I make this up? Am I dreaming? Was this a hallucination? Well, this, this is the attempt to create um, a narrative in a person's head that confuses the person into wondering if they're sane. And uh, this happens over and over and over. And Jason, I do not understand how pastors who are called to pastor people can do this sort of thing to other people. Mm -hmm. You know, I know there are times when something happens where two people have a different version of what happened, or there's a genuine disagreement. You know, you say, I don't think you're as good a singer as you think you are. <laughs> and the singer says, I think I'm a lot better singer than you think I am. All right. I, I can accept that. Right. But, but you can't get up there and say, you know, you are faking that you're a preacher or you are faking that you said this sort of thing in such a way that the powerful person, let's say the pastor, who is the voice of God to people, remember that, mm -hmm. their calling many times is to mediate God and grace to other people, that they, they accuse you or accuse another person of something in such a powerful way that it completely makes a person wonder if they're saying, I do not understand how a pastor could do that. And I am with a lot of pastors and I don't know hardly any of them who could ever do that sort of thing. Right. Like my friend, Steve Carter, there is no way that he could do that. He is so empathetic and listening in his skill that he will listen to what this person has to say. Well, we got to go on. All right. The other thing that, I, that we've noticed uh, and my daughter picked this one up very quickly. And I saw it in the German, in the German situation, mm -hmm. is to make the perpetrator a victim. All right, this mm. was stunning to me in studying German uh, pastors, is they became convinced that they were the victims of American uh, initiatives, that it was the other countries doing this to them, uh, that they were... Uh, so in other words, they suddenly started feeling sorry for themselves for what other people were doing to them. Bill Hybels accused the women of colluding, um, these other families colluding, and that they were lying about him. And people felt bad 
for Bill Hybels. Hmm. So much so that they stood up and gave him a standing ovation mm -hmm. because they thought he was telling the truth. That is what I'm talking about. All of a sudden, the perpetrator becomes the victim and the victims become perpetrators. This is a part of gaslighting, but it's only an element in it. A sixth one that we noticed um, is to silence the truth. There's a lot of things going on in churches right now that deeply disturb me. When I heard about NDAs or non-disclosure agreements, where people who were being released by churches were being paid off because they saw things, they heard things, um, they knew the truth, and they were paid. I know, I know a person who was offered seven figures to keep her mouth shut. Oh I know my. people who got quarter of a million dollars. I know people whose education was paid off. I know people who were bought houses to keep their mouth shut. I, I, I talked to four major megachurch pastors, and I said to them, do you have NDAs? Four of them said no, but then one of them said, well, we did one time in a very small way because we just thought it was going to be so much more expensive to deal with this, and there was no way to win. It was a horrible situation, a dysfunctional person, and we thought we could help them by doing this. But by and large, these churches told me they have never heard of doing NDAs in churches. I talked to a mega church pastor last week who told me, Scott, you called me on this before. We had never done one. I have been investigating this. He said, in the last six months, I think it's become cancerous in churches. There are an increasing number of people in churches who are paying off people who are being fired, called resigning, which is a lie, <laughs> and um, they're paid so much money that they can't tell the truth. Now, what kind of pastor wants people to hide the truth? Mm. I mean, that is simply contrary to the gospel and to the way, the truth, and the life. Whose Scott, name is Jesus. Yes. Scott, on those, who is, who is actually doing the um, approving the payoff? Where the, where's the money coming from and who's approving that? Oh, this, uh, okay, I know one where the pastor himself had so much money. Oh, my. They, they bought someone a house to keep their mouth shut. All right, but by, this is the church's money. These are churches. Jason, there's, some of these churches have a lot of money, mm -hmm. and they are paying people off. And, so are the elders or the deacons um, in on this? I call, all right, I can only tell you, put it this way, Jason. Mm -hmm. It's what I call retainers. Most of these pastors who operate like this find people or get people around them who can protect them. So let's just say it's human resources mm. or it's payroll. Somebody knows what's happening and they're paying it off and they're keeping their mouth shut too. Wow. But it's coming from the good people of the Lord's money. Hmm. It's tithes. And some of these people, you know, they're making $25,000 a year and they have amped up their commitment to the church because of transformation in their life and their tithing and beyond. And that money is being used to pay off people so that the truth 
about leaders, about the church, about the pastor is not going to be known. Wow. Other things are just suppressing the truth. You know, uh, uh, one way of silencing uh, people is, is to intimidate. It is to threaten. Um, think about it this way. I know, I know people who have one income, single mothers who work at churches, who can't talk because they, they don't think they can. Just think of it right now during COVID. Mm-hmm that these people can't resign because they have no other opportunity for income and they know things and they've been intimidated into not telling the truth. So they just simply, the truth is just suppressed, intimidated. Um, And it's awful because it is, um, it's contrary to the gospel and it is profoundly non-pastoral and it is against what God wants for us. Now, mm-hmm. here's another one. We learned this from Wade Mullen. Uh, he brought it to the surface. We'd seen it, but we didn't really label it. So he gave us language is to offer a fake apology. Um, we've seen this with a number of these leaders. They've said things. You know, if I, if I hurt anyone, I want to apologize for that. Well, in fact, you did. And that's a pretty thin apology. And she is not going to accept that. You publicly humiliated, you shamed, and now you want to pass off a weak and thin apology. But frequently we saw anything close to a genuine apology with some of these leaders and the churches. uh, And, you know, let's say I call them the church's retainers. uh, Considered the apology sufficient. Um, I've been in consultation with some leaders recently who are talking about um, a church that went through a crisis like this. And the leaders, the elders, the deacons, I think it's a Baptist church, they they do not want to make any more apology. They want to move forward. Hmm. Well, this, this um, consultant asked me what, what to say. I said, I think they need to read the Old Testament stories about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Every year, Israel went back to Jerusalem and as a nation and as individuals confessed their sins. And they had plenty of time on the trip to think about the sins that they were going to confess. And they confessed them and they were forgiven. Every year we go through Good Friday. What is the Holy Week about if it is not the opportunity to confess our sins? Mm. And in our church, as an Anglican church, every Sunday we publicly confess our sins in in general language by sins what we have done and what we have left undone, Um, that we have not loved God, that we have not loved others as ourselves. We confess this weekly. When you have a habit of confessing your sins, It is not that difficult to say, I sinned. When you think that all your sins are forgiven on because you confess Jesus as Lord and you don't need to ever confess again, Hmm. you know, that's for the Catholics or that's for the Anglicans. Uh, It's actually for almost all Christians in the history of the church. Right. But um, you don't develop the habit, the virtue of confession. 
then you are led to say, boy, if I confess my sins, I'm going to lose my reputation. You know, in the Catholic Church, if you confess your sins, you're just like everybody else. <laughs> That's not an issue. And it's, it's a part of the church's tradition to carry on Yom Kippur by having weekly confession and to go through the same kind of confession during Lent and during the, the Holy Week. So we confess our sins. We are people who acknowledge our sins. When churches are offering fake, thin apologies, they are failing the very theology of grace and forgiveness that they propose and proclaim as the gospel itself. Yeah, that, that's good. And, and Scott, I, I would imagine that you would say that this this rhythm of confession is a part of a, uh, you know, adds to the culture of tov, you know, or of goodness. Yeah. I'd like to yeah. kind of kind of shift because a lot of what you shared is, is very, very true. It uh, can be very discouraging, yeah, you know, I mean, as, as we hear that. So let, let's begin to shift to this. Uh, y- your book is entitled A Church Called Tov, right? So yes. what does, um, one of the things in the book is you talk about that congregants and leaders together are responsible for the culture of a church. You write that over time, it's the interaction of leaders and congregation, congregation and leaders that forms the culture of a church. Yeah. Uh, and so in that sense, everyone in the church is complicit in whatever culture is formed, good or bad. So can you share with us, Scott, a bit of what are some practical ways that a community of believers, you know, both congregants and leaders, can cultivate tov in a church? All right. I would say... Um... The first thing that we, I mean, I'm, I'm going to change the order of the, of the discussion in the book. Uh-huh. Um, I think we have to develop a people first mentality. Um, oh, that's good. An other, an other orientation. Mm-hmm. And to have a people first orientation is to know people's names and to know their stories. I'm teaching a course right now on the book of Revelation. And I have, I think, 55 to 60 students in it, and about 48 of them are online. And it bothers me (laughs) that there are students out there and I don't know their names. It's really difficult when you have a class that large to get to know everybody when it's online. I, I have lived as a professor, knowing my students' names and the stories of many of them. And I used to tell adjuncts who taught for us uh, when they would come in and ask me advice, I would say, learn every student's name as fast as possible and learn as many stories as you can, because then you will be teaching students, not your subject. So, I love my students and I, I want to know their names. I think we need to focus on a people first mentality. When I, I've been to some mega churches, Jason, and, the, and of course it's a thrilling experience. I've been in some where the lights are so bright that I, can, I can't see anybody beyond the first or second row. <laughs> you know, I feel like the rhinestone cowboy. <laughs> you know, the lights are on me. Um, and I think, is this what we're supposed to do? You know, I feel like I'm a talking head up there entertaining people rather than speaking to people I know. 
And there is a completely different dynamic when you just go up there and deliver a message to total strangers and when you're talking to students in your class, because then you say, you know, what I just said there, that's going to bother that person. And it might trigger some bad feelings. I need to back off of that and I need to cover uh, what I just said. Hmm. Uh, that's, I think, first. The second thing is, I think we need, if we're people first culture, we need to nurture empathy. Empathy and compassion was the essence, were the essence of Jesus's ministry. Mm -hmm. He saw people, he saw the needs of people, he saw the names and the stories, and he reached out to them. A third thing I think we can do, Jason, is we can nurture and, and work on grace. Grace is a really big term, and it cannot be reduced to the fact that we didn't deserve God's love, but he gave it to us anyway. Happy, happy, clappy, clappy. <laughs> We're on God's team. Grace is a transforming power as well, and it turns us into agents of grace. Let us say that you are a pastor and you're in charge of the worship team and someone comes in and maybe they were out too late last night and they're not at the top of their game. You as a pastor are now called to talk to this person, to talk to them about stewarding their gifts, about using their time wisely, etc. But you can do it by shaming them, intimidating them, humiliating them, not forgiving them, kicking them off the worship team, finding someone else, you know, Bobby Knight type people. Uh, no, a, a Christian leader is a, someone who has experienced God's grace and knows how to become then an agent of grace in all that they do. Do church cultures know grace? If they don't know grace, we have signs of a toxic culture forming. A fourth one to me is uh, because people are have experienced grace from God, because they are people first, because they have learned to nurture empathy and compassion, they are not afraid of the truth. If something happens that's bad, they say, you know, this is wrong. It shouldn't have happened. But we are Christians who administer grace, and we confess our sins, and we accept grace. We work on restitution and reconciliation, and um, we tell the truth about it. Another one is um, one of the things we found with the narcissists and the power-fear culture is a, an absolute demand of loyalty. And uh, loyalty seems like a good thing, but our, our study, and Laura found a lot of stories of this, um, our study of churches showed that loyalty was the language game of power-mongering pastors demanding people not to tell the truth, not to tell their story, to accept NDAs, and to promote the church um, and to forget their own little quibbles and their the, the sins that they've seen because they'll hurt the church. And time after time, we met women who were afraid to come forward because they didn't want to hurt the church. They didn't want to hurt the pastor. 
They didn't want to hurt the pastor's family, and they didn't want to experience public shaming and gaslighting. Hmm. All covered by loyalty. Hmm. And that is bad. We need to do the right thing. The opposite, oddly, of loyalty like this, what I would call a toxic loyalty, is justice, is to do the right thing. Another side, I think that Tove cultures in churches can form when we become, as I, you know, I started with uh, people oriented, um, is when we become service oriented. Hmm. Service oriented churches are people who try to figure out how they can help others, how they can serve one another, how they can serve the community, how they can serve the homeless, missions, uh, work, others, people in need, uh, and they have the gifts that, that can help these other people. We also found that churches that are toxic are so much into a celebrity and a hero culture that even when they were doing acts of service, it was bringing glory to how great of giving their church had. <laughs> and all of a sudden they're getting praised for their service, which is supposed to be, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Right. Well, the, the last one that we find is our summary term. And this is, this is big to me as a New Testament professor, is I call it Christoformity. Um, the ultimate Tove characteristic is that we are like Christ, is that we are formed into the image of Christ. This is the promise of God's redemption in Romans 8, verse 29, that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. We are going to be Christ-like in glory, and we are called to be made, re being, we are called to be renewed in the image of Christ in the present world, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. We are called to become more and more Christ-like. And I think if we practice the habits of these other things, mm -hmm. that we are actually living into Christ-likeness. So that Christ-likeness is the sum of all seven of these others put together. And it creates Tove people, and Tove people have the instincts of forming Tove cultures. And more importantly, perhaps at times, Tove people have the instinct to recognize toxicity. Hmm. And they look at something, and I think it's Wayne, Wade Mullins' book, it's not the way it's supposed to be. They recognize something, they go, oh, that is not right. Hmm. That pastor should not have responded that way. I saw a pastor being asked a very difficult question the other day uh, about um, financial closures. This is happening in churches all around now. Mm -hmm. And the person asked a question, and it was a very sensitive question, asked sensitively, and the pastor's response was no. That was it. And I thought, when I heard it, I said, that is the most unpastoral response I could possibly imagine at this moment. Hmm. And that was not Tove. That was toxic. Do what I say. That's what was being told, saw, said hmm. by that action. I don't care what your feelings are. Too bad. We're going in another direction. And that's something that is toxic. 
And we need to root out toxicity by being Christ-like, by listening and by responding in a way that takes into consideration who that person is and what their story is. Yeah, that's good. We need to be reflecting Christ, not reflecting the, the greater culture at large, which yeah. is what, I mean, you see a lot of parallels, I think, in, in this book and what you've shared, even our conversation today and, and what we see taking place in either political arenas or the business corporate world, yeah. Um, yeah. which is which is so unfortunate. Scott, is, um, as we're wrapping up, are there any final thoughts, any final words that you'd like to share with, you know, we have pastors and ministry leaders listening in today. Um, a- any final thoughts you'd like to share yeah. with them? You know, um, I was asked by a publisher to write a book about Willow Creek to sort of tell the story. I said, you know, I'm not interested in doing that. Uh, for, for one thing, they're not going to give me access to, to public rec- to the records, the elders meetings that I would need. And I'm not a church historian that I could do that sort of thing. And I said, anyway, I'm interested in the redemptive side of this story. Yes, we have to tell the story. So in a sense, four chapters of our book are kind of depressing. And then everything begins to release. Hmm. And we start moving in the direction of Tove, in the direction of goodness and developing those characteristics. We do have to tell the truth. Uh, This book is not an expose. You know, we're not telling a bunch of things that no one knows. We do have a story or two in there that no one else knows, um, or or at least until now. But by and large, our, our store, our book, Laura and my book, is about forming Tove. It's an overall redemptive message that, because it's like Yom Kippur, has to tell some truths. But the truths are being told so that we can learn and begin to nurture a culture of Tove in each of our churches so that people outside will say, the Lord is, am- is amongst, amongst that group. I want to go there. Amen. Amen. It's excellent, Scott. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. As always, it's a joy to, to hear you have so much to offer. And um, I want to encourage people. Uh, to pick up a copy of a church called Tove, if you're interested in learning more about this, especially that kind of redemptive side. I think it's important for us to see, you know, sort of like you talked about those warnings, those signs of when things can be amiss, but then look at that redemptive side of it. Uh, you yeah, know, sure. how can we move into the goodness, into the Tove of God? So um, a church called Tove, it's available from Tyndale. Um, Scott, real quickly, what's the best way for our listeners to follow your work or to connect with you? Um, okay, I'm I do have social media, but I have a blog at Christianity Today called Jesus Creed. Mm-hmm. I have a Facebook page, uh, and I also have uh, a Twitter account. Excellent. I do have Instagram, but I, I go there once a year. <laughs> I don't even look at Instagram. No worries. Yeah. And we'll have links for our listeners yeah. um, to, to those and to the book of Church Called Tove as well. So, Scott, thank you once again for being with us. We always appreciate hearing from you. God bless you, my friend. Thank you, Jason, very much. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. We hope you are finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast, and if so, we would appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcast so they can benefit as well. Thank you in advance. 
And if you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send an email to podcast at churchleaders.com or connect with me on Twitter. You can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app, available for both Apple and Android. So be sure to check out FaithPlay. Until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.